Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I can't believe that it is already November. And I know that's pretty much always my intro to this podcast is saying, wow, I can't believe we've made it this far. But hey, Love Fest is going to be here in two weeks and then we're going to be rolling on to Advent and sorry if I just can't handle it. Um, Also, apologies in advance. I don't know what's been going on with my microphone. Um, This is my third time through recording this week and there keeps being some sort of feedback. So I apologize. I hope that it won't be Uh, too intense as we jump into it. But uh, we will be continuing in our journey through Mark, and this week's passage is from Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. It says, As he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearance, say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The word of the Lord. So we've spent the last three weeks exploring what it means to us to follow Jesus to love ourselves and our neighbors, Jesus' response to the disciples that were a bit misled, thinking that Jesus was coming into power in a hierarchical sense. And this week's passage comes directly after Jesus throws everyone out of the temple. Now, we've engaged many times, especially recently, around Jesus' social commentary on wealth and systematic oppression. Now, This is a very rich ground for conversation, especially with the religious elite. And even within first century culture, money or economy meant power. Devin Singh, an economic theologian, states that theology does not exist outside of economy and vice versa. The relationship between human, God, and creation have had economic metaphors and ideas thoroughly embedded within the language and beliefs. Whether it's been illustrated in almsgiving, atonement theory, or in the structure of government, Singh breaks down the historical, political, and economic relationships with theology. And again, this is where we have been, and I think one of the many things in which we can explore is then how do we create new language within our theology that doesn't necessarily replicate this economic language or structure. But anyway... That aside, I guess we will be spending this week following suit with understanding what does it mean to engage in economic justice as a result of understanding how we follow Christ, and just how does this play out in our world. And so this season, we have been working our way through the book of Mark. We've already lifted up some of the trends that we see in how Mark is written to reflect certain ideas, 
And for Mark, not all of Jesus's interactions with the religious establishment were contentious. For example, last week, we see him adamantly agreeing with a legal authority on the crucial question of which commandments are most important. But of course, throughout his ministry, Jesus was also keenly concerned about religious arrogance and hypocrisy, and this frequently brought him into conflict with these authorities. Of course, this week's passage is indeed a direct attack on the temple establishment. The temple was not only a religious institution, but an economic one as well. It had employees, Jerusalem was this company town, the temple performed financial functions, including operating as a central bank and treasury. Now, in a society heavily influenced by issues of honor and status, the scribes keep angling for more recognition and higher privilege. Then Jesus comes in and basically mocks them for it and puts them on display. Now, that, that phrase within this passage that Jesus is talking about, um, the widow's house is being devoured. One, it's very true. Um, two, Jesus may be referring to the fact that some scribes or religious authorities were actually becoming legal trustees of widows' estates and, of course, charging ridiculous prices for their services. So Jesus is pointing out and is absolutely aware of the ways in which people become bound by their oppressors to the point of not being able to escape since all access to resource or help or getting out have been cut off. This is one way in which we see economic slavery uh, continue even into today. Now, I think the most powerful thing about this text um, is something that has probably been lifted up before. Um, in talking to, with Ryan just about this week and this passage, we have very similar takes. So if you've been around Mission Hills for a while, you probably know what's coming. Um, but if not, welcome. I hope something is helpful. Uh, but basically, within all of this context, Jesus does not actually congratulate the woman with his words. Contrary to many sermons delivered that encourage people to this level of sacrificial giving, Jesus isn't lifting her up as an example or suggesting that anyone ought to emulate her. She's not this positive example, but rather she's barely getting by, barely living as a representat representation of a system at play. Often those last two verses are read in a positive spin or tone, but I have to believe that Jesus is simply stating a fact uh, rather than trying to make a point that she should be followed. She has given up her entire life in the form of safety, in the form of housing, in the system that has basically said to stay visible and to stay relevant to society, you must participate, even if it means your life. In the first century, um, this temple legitimately was taking away widows' houses and also taking at least one widow's whole life. Mark's gospel goes out of its way to make clear that she is just as much, not more, a victim rather than a hero. 
And all of this is important to us in our current context as we see a continuation of housing instability, healthcare debt, and so many more oppressive factors at play. Vastly different systems, vastly different contexts, and yet we always ask, what does this passage reveal? Now, there, I came across something um, by Professor Vita Scudder, who is a social gospel theologian in the early 1900s. And she wrote this um, in 1916. Just listen to it for a second. It says, the hour has come for Christian thought to give definite sanction to the new social ethic that's been developing for the last half century. The check by common will on private greed, the care for public health, the protection of childhood, the securing of fair leisure from the monotonies of modern labor, form a program hardly to be called radical any longer. This could have been written last week, honestly, and tell that what it may. Um, but part of this new social ethic that Scudder was talking about was the idea of progressive income tax. Uh, now, this was passed in 1913, but many Christians in that time, of course, were pretty mad about it. So they pushed back, um, and yet it is simply meaning that the richer members of society would pay a greater share to care for those of lesser means. For me, that's pretty in line with my idea of what it means to care for one another, um, at least in terms of operating within the system that we have inherited. Now, not to jump around too much, but just speaking into my own current context, part of my seminary training as I round this last corner towards finish is writing and defending my thesis. I'm working with the intersection of the COVID-19 pandemic, the collective trauma that's been experienced, and the impact on both our physical and spiritual bodies. We're asked to name what the sin is within our context and how Jesus, the church, responds to it. And within the context of the pandemic, I think at the very least, a starting point for understanding what the sin is, is that of greed and selfishness. I don't mean this on an individual level so much as a systematic and collective one, um, there's a quote from New York Times that is from back in, I think, March 2021. So these numbers might even be less than what they actually are now. But it says 20 million Americans lost their job in the pandemic. At the same time, roughly 650 billionaires in America saw their net worth increase by more than $1 trillion. They're now worth more than $4 trillion. In other words, U.S. billionaires have gotten about $1.2 trillion richer during the pandemic. Now, this is not the first time and probably won't be the last uh, that we have addressed this obscene amount of wealth within our context, but it's just so provocative because of how obvious it stands against um, Jesus' message in the gospel. In that, this is 650 humans that are worth that much. Now, I don't like the language of 
worth in terms of a dollar amount. I don't think that captures the essence of the human spirit, but it does point to something that I think is both at play within this text and within our current context. That in this story, right, the widow is not a hero. Jesus is revealing how she is a victim of the system. And he also paints this darker picture of how human life has become one of the cheapest commodities, um, at least how I expand this out into our capitalist system. And I'm not talking about how you or I value human life. I am saying that there is somehow been put a dollar amount on how much someone is worth based on how much they can produce, um, based on how much they can contribute to someone else's wealth. And so that is more what I mean rather than saying, well, you know, everyone has just lost sense. Um, no, I, I mean it in a particularly economic framework. Now, I was puttering around looking at a variety of commentaries for the text this week, um, and I came across someone who summarized this passage basically by saying, how can we judge someone's intent? Followed by saying, the things that are valued in the kingdom of God differ from the human realm. As we explored last week, and as we see within the inner workings of our own community, I don't think that we can ever separate these two. This world in which we live is the location of communion with the divine and with one another. If we're not working it out in the human realm, what good is a belief or thought that does nothing to engage with messy grace or the lives of those around us? Jesus is offering the searing critique of how religion is too often distorted to camouflage or justify injustice, selfishness, and apathy. I'm pretty sure that Jesus's idea of kingdom or kingdom, uh, it means a lot to us in our human realm. Now, one of the ways in which we work this out is with communion with one another. Within the Eucharist, Christ's body and blood doesn't identify in something that is ultimately fixed or even known in an object like the two coins that we're talking about in this passage. In fact, identity is X-centric or other-centered. The self is displaced without being destroyed. It is this intimate act of mutual co-abiding. It subverts all the categories that have raised walls between us between one another. Communion doesn't operate from the same kind of currency that we're familiar with, if it even operates with a currency at all. One of the theologians I've brought into conversation with my thesis is Angel Mendez Montoya, um, and they offer this particular quote in talking about the Eucharist. It says, through such Eucharistic action, this same body is furthermore broken into pieces and shared with the main purpose of being consumed, so that the partakers of the Eucharistic banquet may be transformed into the single boundary-crossing mystical body of Christ. In these examples, there is a movement freely initiated by God going from self to the other, a gesture in which divinity reaches out beyond divine self and co-abides with us in the midst of the created order, and most intensively, within the ones ingesting. All of this to say, 
the Eucharist and communion breaks away from what is happening within that system that's at play. Instead, it's an action of welcoming and sharing with the other, an attitude of abundance that is far different from the scarcity mentality in which someone feels like they don't have enough when they already have worth of $1.2 trillion. It's an action that is taking place and is this mutual embracing of divinity and humanity. The word love, as we mentioned last week, gets thrown around a lot. It has lost some of its meaning and its overuse. But I think we truly do experience capital L, love, in the midst of the Eucharist. And it can't be done as some private form of worship. It's a political, public, communal performance that challenges the powers of the world, including its economic order. Jesus extends this act to us, and I'm pretty positive extended that act to the widow. We can see how radically different the act, expression, and location of communion is, so far removed from the experience of the widow, who's been robbed of everything she has from a system that demands engagement to maintain relevance and visibility within the community. Her life is regarded as cheap, so much so that people are willing to believe or interpret this text as saying that those two pennies that she gave to the church are worth more than her life or safety in her home. So just a couple things to consider this week as we round towards Sunday. The first, how do we remind the world of human dignity and worth in a cultural culture and economy that seeks to cheapen human life? whether in war, economy, oppression. And of course, built on that, in trying to uh, step away from a human-centric understanding of the world, how does that also extend to our planet, to creation, the environment, etc., etc.? And additionally, how do we seek economic justice in a system that is pretty much determined to see us fail? In these things, We are continuing to work out what it means to be human, what it means to follow Christ, what it means to experience capital L love, and somehow make meaning of this life. Um, So I'm looking forward to our conversation on Sunday. And as always, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest.